the sermon from which this, uh, the text from which this sermon comes, uh, the sermon from which this text comes is uh, chapter 22 of the first book in the Bible. Now, if you're one of those that keeps a record and marks Tidwell preached here, um, same text but different sermon. I promise it's not an early summer rerun, uh, but a totally different um, approach to this great text. I've preached twice, as a matter of fact, from this text here. You didn't recognize either one, nor will you today. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, now, if you are reading from a uh, King James version of the Scriptures, you'll notice that the second use of the word son is in italics, means that it's not there in the original manuscript and was added for clarity. But sometimes, I think that when you add for clarity, you really impair the clarity, really. Um, take your only well, you see, when, when Abraham gave Isaac, he gave everything he had, your only. Isaac was the sum total of everything that Abraham had and was. So we'll leave it out, okay? And it does look a little weird when you leave it out, but trust me, okay? Take your only, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He didn't tarry around about it. Took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place saw the place from a distance. Now you may think that uh, Abraham did not really offer his son Isaac on the altar, but he really did. As a matter of fact, the epistle of James says that was not Abraham our father justified when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. I have noticed that in every life that is really usable to God, there is an altar. As a matter of fact, wherever there are lives that are really used of God in a maximum way, the altar is the principal furniture in that life. In every life that's usable, there is an altar. Now an altar is the place where the sacrifice is made to God. It's the place of worship. It's the place of surrender and submission. And in the case of Abraham, it was, in the, it was the place of weaning. For the Lord was weaning him away from everything so that he would be satisfied fully in the Lord alone. And he was always having to do this. When he called him, he said, I want you to get up and leave your father's house 
and your land and go to a land that I will show you. He was weaning him from his dependence upon his father and upon his native surroundings. And there came a time when Abraham's nephew Lot's herdsman and Abraham's herdsman got into a conflict. And so Abraham said it's necessary for us to part the way now. You take whatever land you want, and I'll take what's left. He had to give up that land, weaning him from the land. And later he had to give up Lot. But now came the most acid test of all. He said, I want you to take your son, everything you have, your only and I want you to offer it on the sacrifice, on, on the altar as a sacrifice. I want you to take everything you've got and give it to me. Now, the crucial point of all of this was really to, to make Abraham usable, you see. God was doing all of this so that Abraham could be used in maximum ways to bless the world. Now it's really no different. You see, before God can ever really use us, there has to be, we have to be brought to a right relationship with things. Before God can really use us to the maximum, there has to be this altar where the sacrifice is made to God, this place of submission, this place of surrender. And so there are a couple of things this morning that are going to be necessary in this text, in this, in this sermon. One is we need to define our Isaac. Define our Isaac. Everybody has an Isaac. It's usually that which comes between that person and the Lord. Define your Isaac. You say, well, now help me find out what my Isaac is. What is there in my life that, that stands between me and God? Well, in the first place, your Isaac is that which you love more dearly than anything else. Now, God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son you love, and the Hebrew word means that you love supremely, that, that has the supreme place of affection and devotion in your life. I want you to take that. It's what you love more dearly than anything else. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. It may be your reputation so that what people think about you is more important to you than anything in this world. It may be your job. It might be some plan or scheme. It may be material possessions. But when God keeps putting His finger on it, and thus He does, when you think about giving that up to God, it always causes your heart to quicken a little bit. It creates that kind of a nauseous anxiety there. You know what I'm talking about, that which you love more supremely than anything else. And the more I know about God, the more I'm convinced that God will brook no rival to His love. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Now, I used to think that that phrase before me meant that, you know, you put God up here at number one and then you have all this rest, you know, down here. 
as though, God, you're number one today, you're first today, but I want you to take fair warning. There are other gods that are vying for your position in my life, and if you don't come through today, if you fail me today, then you're liable to take number two place. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that at all. It means thou shalt have no other gods before my face so that when I look in your life, I want to see no rival there. When I came back from West Texas, my wife met me at the airplane. And so I took her in my arms and said, I'm so glad to see you. I missed you. I just want you to know you're number one with me. You're first in my life. But I, do, I need, do need to tell you that out in Plainview, I met this little blonde and she's number two. And, 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 then, and, 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 and one day there in Hale Center, there was this little redhead and she's number three. And it just so happened on the plane, I was sitting by this brunette and she's number four. You think I said that? I'd be sleeping with Freckles the Wonder Dog for the rest of my, my life. I mean, that, that, that kind of behavior that kind of behavior is not even acceptable to you as far as, as, as I'm concerned. So, so why is it that we play these games with God? Lord, you're number one, but I must warn you and, and I must advise you that there are these other gods that are vying for your affection and I'm just kind of holding on to you by my fingernails. God said to Abraham, if you don't love me enough to take Isaac and put him on the altar, you cannot be blessed of me and I cannot use you to bless the nations. And then Jesus came along who is the perfect revelation of the Father. And he said, if any man comes after me, any man wants to be my disciple and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And to hear those words that seem harsh and cold bring us up sharp, don't they? But to really know what Jesus meant, you have to understand that in Hebrew thought, much was, much was used of contrast, great contrast. And so if a Jew wanted to say, I like this better than that, he'd say, I love this and hate that. And the people were used to it. And so Jesus took those two extremes of love and hate and show, show, to show that even in a family relationship, there needs to be an understanding of what a commitment to God means. It means that the Lord must be lifted above even family. It means that an allegiance to Jesus Christ takes priority even over your family, it means that the will of God is to be elevated above the will of the family. He's saying that if in the center of your life is even your family in such a way that you love them above me, then you're worshiping them and, the, and, and, and they're all you have and it won't be long until they'll be worshiping you and you'll be all they have. And it's kind of a frightening thing to realize, isn't it, that you can love your family in such a way that it separates them from God and you from God. 
And so if the hour ever strikes, Jesus is saying, when this call to the highest human love conflicts with the call of Christ, there's just one thing to do. Trample over your heart and go after Him without question or compromise. I ask you, do you love Him like that? Your Isaac is that which you love more than anything else. Secondly, your Isaac is that thing on which you're pinning your hopes for the future. Now Abraham said, I want you to take your only son, your only, and offer him as a sacrifice. Now years before this, God had made Abraham a promise. You know the promise as well as I do. He promised Abraham that he was going to give him a son and in and through that son, he was going to bless the other nations of the world so that that son was a symbol of everything God had promised. That son was the symbol of the thing on which he had pinned his hopes for the future. Your Isaac is that thing you're trusting in today for today and tomorrow. It might be your job. That's the source of my future, you say. Man, if I lost my job, I don't know what I'd do. It might be your plans or schemes, the way you've just worked things out for your future. It might even be a savings account. Let, let me ask you a, a question. What if God came to you this morning and you just knew it was God? No question about that. He said, I want you to quit your job and come after me. What would you do? Or suppose God came to you today and said, you just knew it was God, no question about that, and said to you, I want you to take that savings account you have and give it to missions. You say, well, God would never, never cause, ask me to do that. God, that's a dumb thing. God would never require that. Well, God would never ask Abraham to give Isaac. That's a dumb thing. You say, God would never ask me to do, I'm counting on that for my livelihood and my future. That's just the point. What are you trusting in this morning? And so there came a man, he was rich and he was young. I am neither, so I, I envy him. He was rich and he was young and he had authority and they called him the rich young ruler. And he had everything except are you listening? He had everything except life. And he came to Jesus and he said, Now I've been taking a long look at you, you Nazarene. I want you to tell me, give me the secret of how you've come to grasp life by the teeth. And Jesus said, Well, what does the book say? He said, Well, it says, and he named all these commandments. And Jesus said, well, in essence, you, you, you've been depending on those for life and it's obvious that you're not going to find life and just keeping the commandments. That's obvious or you wouldn't be here. Then he put his finger on it. He said, go and sell everything you have and come after me. You know what he was saying? I want you to empty your life of everything you're depending on so you can trust completely in me. You see, before Isaac came along, all that Abraham had to lean on was the Word of God. But when Isaac came along, 
All of a sudden he had something tangible that he could see, put his hands on here. He had something tangible to trust in. And, and he no longer trusted in God like he'd done before he had that tangible evidence. You see that? One of, the best, one of my favorite uh, stories in the New Testament is when when, that one, when, when Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I, I need your help. My daughter's dying. Well, Jesus started out immediately with the disciples to go to Jairus' house. On their way, I mean, this was urgent. His daughter was dying. On their way, this great mob of people was so great that they could just barely move along, and somebody reached in and touched the hem of his garments. You remember that story? Touched him with a purpose, and, and, and Jesus stopped. Okay, when he stopped, put, put Jairus and this healing process on hold. And Jairus was, 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 was anxious about it. I just see him. He's standing on the outside of this crowd, just, you know, just on one foot and then the other, just wringing his hands, thinking, why doesn't he hurry up? My daughter's dying. About that time, Jesus said, come out, whoever touched me, come here. And this woman came up. I mean, she'd been 12 years seeing the doctor and all now that she wanted to talk about was her doctor's visits. Now here was Jairus out here on the edge of the crowd and here's this woman talking about her visit to the doctor. Now if you've ever talked to a woman about her visit to the doctor, I mean, that could take all day. And here was this woman in there and, and they were talking about her trips to the doctor and, and here was Jairus with his daughter dying out here just anxious to move on. Get on with it, hurry. But just when Jesus turned, you remember the story? When he turned to, to proceed to, to, to Jairus' house, the word came, you can forget it, she's dead. Now Jesus is going to act like that a lot of times. Let me tell you what he does to me from time to time. He just tarries and tarries and tarries until the situation gets beyond human hope. At the very moment he started on his way, the word came, don't waste his time, she's already dead. Now as long as she was alive, there was something tangible. I mean, as long as there's life, there's hope. You've heard that, haven't you? And as long as he knew that his daughter was alive, he could keep on believing. You know what Jesus said? An amazing statement. He said, don't be afraid, keep on believing. And there's dynamite in those words. For there was a faith that brought Jairus to Jesus in the first place. I mean, he was chairman of the board of the synagogue that refused admission to Jesus and his ministry. He was already put out of the synagogue. And here this chairman of the board was out here in wide open spaces appealing to Jesus of Nazareth. There was an urgency about him, but as long as his daughter was alive, he could trust in that. But now she's dead. Jesus said, now keep on believing in me. And he'll do that. Well, you see, God doesn't want us trusting in anything but him. I picked up the newspaper this morning and I... And I read uh, in the Dallas Morning News about this Black Sunday, 50 years ago the Dust Bowl hit, or Black Sunday hit in the Dust Bowl days out in western Oklahoma. Some of you can remember that. Some of us are not that old, but some of you can remember that. And I thought about the man who came to me one day, told me one day, he said, Pastor, he said, we went through the Depression. He said, when we went through the Depression... He said, we didn't have a thing. We, we went for days. Sometimes we didn't have enough to eat. But he said, you know what? 
He said, I believe we were closer to God then than we've ever been in our, than we've been since. You know what he was saying? You know what he was talking about? He was saying when we didn't have anything else tangible to trust in, we just trusted in God, you see. All right, you're Isaac. Is that what you trust in, pin your hopes for the future on? Third, your Isaac may be the greatest gift God has ever given you. Now I want you to watch this because this sounds strange. Isaac was God's gift to him. I mean, he was the evidence of God's love and blessing. Let me, let me tell you something. Sometimes the greatest threat to your faith may be a blessing from God. For what God was doing with, Isaac, with Abraham was, I'm going to test you, Abraham, to see if I can trust you with a blessing. I'm going to test you, Abraham, to see if you're ready to take my blessing and use it in the right way, you see. Now, there's a New Testament illustration of that. I, I was going to read that, but I don't think I will. It's found, I want you to do it, though. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and the Apostle Paul is speaking, and he said, let me tell you about this man. And he's talking about himself, but he doesn't identify himself. He said, this guy, whether in body or spirit, I don't know which, but he went to heaven and heard inexpressible words. He heard words that nobody's ever been able to utter and saw things nobody's ever been able to tell about. He was talking about himself. I mean, one day God just took him to heaven and blessed him with that scenery and with those sounds that are there. And then Paul said, lest I exalt myself or be exalted in my blessing, God sent a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh to buffet me, to remind me that I am weak and dependent upon God. You see what I'm talking about? Sometimes the greatest blessings can be the very thing that you'll have to surrender to God. Now, it scares me to death, folks. When I pick up the Baptist messenger or some newspaper and read about all these church testimonials, you know, and, and these guys will say, you know, we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that, it scares me to death. Not one mention of God ever. We did this and we did that and, and no evidence, that, that no praise to God. It's the greatest sin. And sometimes it happens to me, you know, you know, sometimes when God is really blessing us on Sunday and people are coming and things are going great, no problems during the week, you know what I find myself doing? Tarrying less in the prayer closet. Tarrying less in the time of prayer. And what I begin to find myself doing is, hey, look at what I'm doing here. Look at what I'm doing. Sometimes your greatest blessing from God can be your Isaac that you have to surrender to him. Are you ready to fail this morning? All right, you define your Isaac. I'll, I'll, I'll define mine. Second thing that has to happen, we'll touch these and then we'll be through. When you define your Isaac, you have to die to it. Now I want you to note and put it down somewhere in the Bible that it wasn't the death of Isaac that God wanted. It was the death of Abraham. It wasn't the death of Isaac that he wanted. It was the death of Abraham. Now this is the way he says it. He says, Abraham, I want you to offer up. I want you to give me your Isaac. I want you to offer it up. Now this is the way we pray. Isn't this the way we pray? Lord, if you want this in my life, you take it. 
Lord, if you want this thing in my life, you just take it. I'll just let you take it. You take it. God, if you want this relationship, you take it away. God, if you want this thing that I'm, wor I'm worshiping, you take it away. It'll never happen. He's not going to take anything you don't first offer. And what he's asking Abraham to do was to offer this, uh, this sacrifice, offer this, this Isaac, give it to God. He'll never take it until you offer it. That's the test. And when you're willing to offer it, then you're, willing, you're ready to die to it. All right, now three things about that. About this sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of faith. A sacrifice of faith. Now, it's the most unbelievable thing about this record, about this story, is not, is not that God would ask Abraham to give Isaac. Now, I, I've listened to people preach whole sermons debating on whether or not God would really ask Abraham to give up Isaac. <laughs> I mean, spend the whole time on that. The most unbelievable thing about this story is not that God would ask Abraham to give up Isaac. The most unbelievable thing about this story is that Abraham would do it. It is a tremendous step of faith. And you see, you've never had faith. You've not had faith until you act upon God's Word. Now, now, now listen to this definition of faith. I, I, I need you to get this. Faith is acti acting upon the Word of God regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. It is acting upon God's Word regardless of the consequences or the circumstances. Now the consequences and the circumstances make this act an act of faith because what he was doing was he was giving up the thing that he loved the most, God's greatest blessing to him, and everything that God had ever promised him was dependent upon that boy. An act of faith. Now the book of Hebrews says that Abraham got to thinking about it and this is what he concluded. This is his thought. I want you to get into the mind of Abraham with me this morning and listen to his thought pattern. Now, now Isaac is, 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 is the son that, that God is going to bless the nations of the earth through. Now, now he's asked me to offer him up as a sacrifice. I know God. I know what God is like. If God asked me to do it, then, then, then the book of Hebrews says, then he said, why, he must be going to raise him from the dead. He not once thought, God will stop my hand before I plunge the knife, but he did think God will raise him from the dead. That is pretty good, uh, that, that's pretty good insight. Never had been done before. And the scripture says that when he got his servants there, he told his servants, now you stay here. Isaac and I are going yonder and we, the plural, will be back here in a little while. Because in the heart and mind of Abraham was this confidence in this faith that God, if he asked it, would perform the miracle to provide it. You see, an act of faith. Your Isaac on the altar is an act of faith. It's an act of fellowship. When you're offering up your Isaac on the altar, listen to me, you're in good company because only the people of faith, only the people who walk with God have ever done that. You're in good company. 
and I want you to know this morning, I want you to hear this, that you're never closer to God than when you're offering your Isaac on the altar. You're never closer to God than that. And that's what Paul meant when he said, Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His suffering. For there has to be suffering for that kind of fellowship. There has to be sacrifice for that kind of fellowship. You'll never get closer to God that when you're offering your Isaac on an altar. I used to go off to choir camp when I was a kid. There's a song they used to sing way back then. I mean, every time they'd sing it, I'd want to I'd make a decision. <laughs> All they had to do was sing this song. I'd, I'd, I'd make a decision. I'd go to Africa. I'd, I'd, I'd swim the Congo, you know, to be a missionary. It, I mean, it just really got a hold of me. You've heard the song, Nothing Between my soul and the Savior. Not of this world's elusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. And when they got down to third verse, I mean, they had me right here by the jugular vein. They had me anywhere they wanted. God just was moving in by then. Listen to what that third verse says. Nothing between like pride or station, self or friends shall not intervene. Though it may cost me much tribulation, I am resolved there's nothing between. I I'm wondering this morning, is there anything today between you and fellowship with God? You say, well, I don't really know. Well, how's your prayer life? How's your devotional life? How's your witnessing life? How's your giving life? How's your serving life? Is there anything between? One last thought. Not only was it an act of faith and fellowship, it was an act of finality. It was the burnt offering. Do you see that? He split wood for the burnt offering. Let me tell you what the characteristic of the burnt offering was. Not a piece was left. It was all consumed. Now some of those offerings they offered on the altars, I mean that was the great debate of the New Testament whether or not you could eat meat offered, you know. Uh, they, they, th th not all offering was consumed. Some of it was, was taken back and eaten, you see. But the burnt offering was total consumption. It was totally consumed. And when it was finished, there was nothing left. Now what God is saying to Abraham is this. I want you to give yourself to me all the way and there's no going back. There's no going back. There's no taking it back. There's no getting it off the altar because it's consumed there. You don't make a promise and go back on it. It's all the way, all the way. It's what Paul meant when he said, I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. You know what he meant? He meant as far as the world is concerned, I'm dead. And as far as I'm concerned, the world is dead. For I've given myself fully and finally to God and I'm not going back. Have you? I think I may have told this story. It's the only thing about this sermon, it's a rerun. I'm going to tell it again. 
I asked Lee, he said it'd be all right. He said he'd heard lots of preachers use illustrations before. I'm just kidding. Charles Welburn was in the service, World War II, Korean War maybe. And he said they had a little boy that they just kind of adopted. He, he was an a orphan, orphaned by the war. And they just adopted his company, just adopted him. And they, 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 they fixed him some army fatigues. They, they sewed him up, fixed so it'd fit him, and, and they called him Charlie. That was his name. And, 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 and he was just part of their group. And so as the war progressed, he was there in the tent. He was there in the company with them, and Charlie was. And, and so as the war wound down, it's time to, for them to ship out. They began to prepare Charlie for the day when they would leave. And they said, now, Charlie, you remember now, one of these days we're going to have to leave. I'm going to leave you here, and they'll take care of you here. And, and, and just remember that soldiers don't cry. When it's time for us to part, remember, soldiers don't cry. And the day came, and the jeep pulled up out in front to come get Charlie and take him to the orphanage. And they were going to muster out and ship out the next day. He said Charlie was there in the tent and they, got, they all said their goodbyes and they said, now Charlie, remember, soldiers don't cry. This little Korean boy started out the door of the tent getting the, getting the, getting the jeep. Halfway out, he forgot about being the soldier that he wasn't and remembered the little boy that he was. He came back in, he fell down right in front of Charles Wilbur and grabbed him around the legs and said, I can't go away. I belong to you. Abraham said, God, I belong to you. Fully and finally. Can you say that? Let's pray together. Father, in a spirit of prayer, we come to this moment of invitation to pray that every movement will be a movement toward you. Every decision will be a decision to cr toward Christ. Every commitment will be a commitment to an altar, to a sacrifice, to an Isaac. Bless this moment of invitation that you will get glory from it. And we'll praise you. We'll not take the credit, glory for it. Glorify you. In Jesus' name. Now, would you look here? There are three invitations. We'll say these quickly. First is the invitation for you to come give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Your Isaac may be yourself. You've never given yourself to the Lord. First time act of faith and surrender and salvation experience. Coming, repenting, turning away from the life where you've been in control to let him take control. Trusting Him and trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. Uh, many of us have shared the gospel this week. And we've come to the time of decision. We've said, now this is what it means to be saved. It means to trust Jesus, Jesus only, for your salvation. Transfer your trust from where it is to Him. The second invitation this morning is for you to come and join the church. Put that on, your, put that on the altar this morning. Well, I've got a church that I love back home. 
Put your faith, put your trust, put your walk with God right here. Come today. Join the church. We'll show you how to do that. Or maybe there are those of us, many of us here, most of us are Christians. Most of us have Isaacs. I ask you to put your Isaac on the altar today, fully and finally. Act of faith, fellowship, and finality. Would you do it? While the choir sings our invitation, we'll invite you to come. The best time to come is on a first word. Just do it. Come right now, would you?